We're starting a new series this week, and uh, I thought I would start just with a little bit of vulnerability. I'm going to show you guys a photo and then talk about it for just a minute. Uh, This is my seventh grade yearbook photo. Uh, maybe 1980, I don't know, 1980-something. I don't remember exactly when. Uh, Everything about this picture, when I look at it, says seventh grade to me. The braces, the hair, the whole deal. Uh, I was not happy with this picture when it showed up in the yearbook. You remember back then, you couldn't really see your picture before it showed up in the yearbook. Uh, The thing is, this was actually my second attempt at getting a good photo. I had gone to the original photo shoot. They gave us a proof. I didn't like the way my hair looked in the first one, so I went to have it reshot, and it turns out when it showed up in the yearbook, it looked the same. It didn't look any different. Uh, Now, I spent, this may surprise you, I actually spent a long time every morning trying to get my hair to look like what I wanted it to look like. Uh, Back when I was younger, I had this wavy, curly hair that I could not get to lie down. Uh, When I was a kid, the style was not wavy, curly hair. I wanted hair that would lie down flat. So I would stand in front of the mirror, and I would just try so hard to get this hair to go down like it was supposed to go down, and usually by about second or third period, this is what it looked like. Now, why did I do that? Why was I so concerned with looking the right way? Well, the same reason you probably were at the same age. I wanted friends. I wanted people to like me. I wanted to be a part of the cool crowd. I wanted one day maybe to have like a date or something like that. So I worked hard to look the right way so that I would have relationships where people would accept me, where I'd be part of the group, where I would feel liked and loved, where I would have that sense of belonging. Now, you may not have done the exact same things, but my guess is that in one way or another, you did things to try to be a part of the group. Maybe it was through trying to be athletic. Maybe it was through trying to be in the smart group. Maybe it was through your talent. Maybe it was through being funny. But you probably had something or things that you did to say, I want people to know who I am. I want people to like me. I want to know. I want to be known. All of us had that desire, and we still have that desire. It is a part of who we are that from our very earliest moments on this planet, we want to have relationships with other people. We want to be known. We want to know others. We want to be loved. We want to love others. And it begins when we're very, 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 very small. Let me show you another picture I ran across this week. This was uh, the very first time that my wife got to hold our son in the hospital. He had been in the NICU for a couple of days, so we weren't able to hold him right away. And I love this picture because of the eye contact they're making. That from the very first days of his life, as he's listening to her voice, there's something in him that says, I want to know her. I want to connect with her. I want to be loved. Babies want to know and be known. It's innate to who they are because it's innate to who we are as human beings. All of us desire relationships. Relationships with our parents, relationships with our kids, relationships with friends. We desire romantic relationships. We want good workplace relationships. We want good relationships in our neighborhood. 
We want to know and be known because God has made us to know people and to be known by other people. You know, it's interesting, as a pastor, you might think that most of the questions that I get from people relate to theological issues, right? Questions about the end times or which, which books of the Bible belong in the canon, or the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I do get some of those questions. But by far, the most common questions that I get from people are not about any of that stuff, but they're about relationships. Relationships with God, relationships with other people. How can I know a God that I can't see? How can I go grow closer to a God that I can't see? How can I get along better with my spouse when we're in conflict? How can I resolve the problems that I have in my marriage? How can I be kind to my children when at least 50% of the time they're punks to me? What do I do? How can I connect with people in the body of Christ? I hear that one a lot. How can I find community where I will have a group of friends who will know who I am and who will love me for who I am? All of us have a deep, innate desire to connect with others. This past week, I was just looking at the top-selling books on Amazon, and, and something stuck out to me. The number one bestseller this week is a book called Talking to Strangers about how to interact better with people you don't know very well. I actually read that one. The number five book was called Awkward, The Science of Why We Are Socially Awkward and Why That's Awesome. Number seven, boundaries, how to set appropriate boundaries in your relationships. Number 12 is a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Now, some of you recognize that title. Book was written in 1936. It has sold more than 15 million copies. One of the best-selling, one of the top 20 best-selling nonfiction books of all time. It's been on the bestseller list almost continuously for more than 80 years. Number 14, The Five Love Languages, which has been on the bestseller list since 2009. And I read that and I thought, what evidence that we are wired for connection. We are made for relationships. So that's what we're going to talk about this semester. And as we look at the scripture... We're going to see that relationships are important to God. They're not just important to us, they're important to God. Our relationship with God, our relationships with other people. As you read the Bible, you're going to see a ton about all of our relationships, marriage and family and work and neighbors and the world and our relationship with our friends. There's a ton about it in the scripture because relationships matter to God. And if you're like me, you might say something like this. If you're, if you're like me, I, I was thinking about this this week. Because I have an innate desire to connect with other people, I can say honestly that my most joyful moments in my life all involve other people. You probably could say the same. Whether it's your wedding or whether it is uh, having your kids or a moment with your kids or memories of friends in high school or college or as a young adult. Or maybe at a graduation ceremony where everybody you loved was around you. Your most joyful moments are those moments when you're connecting with other people. But my most painful moments also involve other people. Moments of disappointment. 
Moments of misunderstanding, moments of conflict, moments where I felt somebody had said something about me that was not true, moments of anger, moments of frustration. How is it that what gives us the most joy in life, our relationships and the people in them, what gives us the most joy also brings us the most pain? That's what we're going to talk about this semester as we dive into the subject of relationships. And we're going to look at a variety of relationships, different spheres of relationships from the church to the home to our communities to our workplace. We're going to look at a variety of relationships and see how God has wired us for relationships, but also why they're hard and what can we do about it. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And I want to begin simply with this statement. I've said it a couple of times. We were made for relationships. We were made for relationships. So if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, you see God creating the entire world, the entire universe. And the crowning achievement of God's creation is mankind, humanity. And you remember the story, God creates a man, Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden. It's this wonderful place where Adam has everything he needs. He has all the food he needs. He has an unhindered relationship with God because sin had not occurred yet. Nothing was uh, damaging that relationship between Adam and God. So Adam's got everything he needs. And yet, right after Adam is created, The Lord God said this, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And some of you know this, throughout the first two chapters of Genesis, over and over again, God sees his creation. He says, it is good, it is good, it is very good, it is good. First time, Genesis 2, it is not good for the man to be alone. And God is not simply saying that he needs to have a wife. God is not saying that Adam or any person is incomplete without a spouse. There's something a whole lot deeper going on here. And it is this, that you and I are made to connect with other people. It is not good to be alone. Sometimes in Christian circles, I've heard people say something like this. You know what? All I need is just me and God. That's it. All I need is me and God. And I get why people say that. I really do. Because no other relationship on earth can fulfill you and bring meaning to your life like your relationship with God. I get it. But the statement in and of itself is wrong. Because the scripture says you and I were also made to connect with people. We're designed that way. It is not good for the man to be alone. We see that even in popular culture. Watch any horror movie. What happens when people are alone? (laughs) They die, right? Somebody goes, hey, I'm going to go check out that noise all alone. And you go, dead. He's dead. He's gone. Many of you have seen Home Alone, classic movie. And Home Alone, one of the most popular movies of all time. What's the premise? Even if your family is terrible, you're better off with them than alone. Because if you're alone in the house, you might have to defend it against crazy bandits. Right? And at the end of the movie, what, what is really the lesson at the end of the movie? He's grateful for the people that are in his life. He wants them back, even though at the beginning he was glad they were gone. 
Some of you have experienced this in your own life. Maybe you had a weekend or a week where your family left town. Your spouse and your kids, maybe they went on a trip and for some reason you didn't go with them. It's happened to me. What happens for the first hour or two after they leave? You're like, freedom, right? I don't have to do the dishes. I don't have to make the bed. I don't have to answer silly questions. I can do whatever I want. It's my house today. And you might live like that for a day, for a couple of days, three or four days, but at some point in there, what happens? You start to miss them. You start to think, oh, I want them back because I want the people that are important to me to be here. It's not good for us to be alone. Why are we like that, though? But here's why. Again, you go back to the beginning of the story, to the book of Genesis, and God says this, let us make man in our image. We are made in the image of God. And notice God says, let us make man in our image. See, this is very important. We are made to know and be known because God made us in his image, and God is a God of relationship. God's a relational God. God has always existed as three persons in one God, a trinity from eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so right at the beginning, we get this idea at the very beginning of the book of Genesis that God is a relational God. What was God doing before we were around, before creation was around? Well, God was in a relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they can see my glory that you gave me. Why? Because you loved me before the creation of the world. What was God doing before we were around? Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in a relationship of love. God is love. This is why we can say God is love. In fact, the the God that we worship, the God of the Scripture, is the only God of all the religions on earth that you can honestly say is love, that He is love and He was love before we were around. Why? Because He was already in a relationship of love before we came along. Any other God would need people in order to express love, right? Because there is no relationship in any other God. But the God that we worship, He is love. It's one of His defining attributes. This is why in the New Testament, 1 John, John would say, dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been fathered by God and knows God. The person who does not love does not know God because God is Love. John says love is so important to God. Relational love is so important to God that if you don't love, you really don't know anything about God. You don't know the God who created the universe. You don't know the God who gave Jesus because he is love. It's part of who he is and we're made in his image. So when you have those desires to say, I want to have friends, I want people to know me. I want to have a spouse. I want to have a better relationship with my spouse. I want to have kids. I want to have closer relationships with my kids. I want to know my neighbors. I want to get along with my coworkers. All of those desires are desires implanted in you and me by a relational and loving God. We're made for relationships. This is why we seek joy 
in relationships. And this is why we gather joy from relationships. But at the same time, we also see that although we're made for relationships, sin makes our relationships really hard. Sin makes our relationships really hard. You don't have to read very far into the book of Genesis to see things begin to break down. You remember the story. God had given Adam and Eve one tree they weren't supposed to eat from. Lots of trees they could eat from. One they couldn't eat from. They chose to disobey God and eat from that tree. What happened? From then on, there's a rift in the most important relationship any of us will ever have. The rift between humanity and God. And so that relationship has been damaged because of sin, because you and I chose to disobey God. What happens immediately after that? Well, it says that the man and the woman, they knew that they were naked and they were ashamed. What does that mean? What entered into their relationship at that moment? Shame and the desire to hide. They're ashamed of who they are. They're ashamed of their own sin. And so there's a rift between Adam and Eve because there's a rift between them and and God. Sin makes our relationships hard. See, this is the problem in any relationship that you and I have. We bring sin into it. We bring our own sinful desires. We bring our own selfish expectations. We bring our own hurt from previous relationships. We bring our own mistrust. And so you get two sinful people or three sinful people or four or five or more into a room, and there will almost inevitably eventually be some kind of conflict. You know, if you, if you did premarital counseling before you were married, they would tell you, they'd sit down, they'd go, you know, there are certain things that are going to cause conflict, right? So they might say, you know, uh, intimacy and money and in-laws and those types of things are going to cause conflict for you. And then once you have kids, you've got a whole other area of conflict. Why do all these things cause conflict? Well, because I have expectations for you. You have expectations for me. I have desires for what I want out of this relationship. And you have different desires for what you want out of this relationship. And our desires are in conflict. And most of those desires are selfish desires because we're sinful. And so we fight. And we argue. Think about money just, just as for a moment. Money is a limited resource. And so in a marriage, different people have different expectations for what they want from their money, right? So you say, I want this from our money, and you want this from our money, and, and those things don't match up. I want to hoard the money. You want to spend the money. I want to buy food with the money. You want to buy decorative pillows with the money. And so we disagree, and so we fight, That happens in every relationship that we're in. James chapter 4 says it this way. Where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this? From your passions that battle inside of you. You desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. Now, one person in a relationship at any given moment might be acting more sinfully than another. But we all bring it in there. And so our relationships are tough. And here's really the kicker. The relationships we look to to bring us the most joy are the ones that can bring us the most pain. The people that we're closest to are the ones that hurt us the deepest. 
I've been in a lot of prayer groups, Bible studies, accountability groups, all that kind of stuff in my lifetime. Heard a lot of prayer requests for relationships. I've never heard one that runs like this. Hey, there's this guy that works at my favorite taco place who always gets my order wrong and brings me flour instead of corn. Can you just pray for us that we would reconcile because I can't sleep and it hurts me so deeply. I've never heard that. Why? Because if it bothers you, you just go to a different taco place. You let that go quick. But I've heard a lot of prayer requests like this. Can you pray for my wife and me? Because we're struggling to communicate. And I feel hurt and misunderstood. Can you pray for me and my son or my daughter? Because my my daughter says things to me seemingly on purpose that hurt me badly. And then I say things in return that hurt her. Can you pray for my relationship with my dad who hurt me as a kid? And now I want to reconcile with him. Can you pray for me and my roommate? Because I punched him yesterday. The closer you are to somebody, the greater the potential for joy and the greater the potential for pain. And that's the nature of living in a sinful and fallen world. It's not, a, it's not a mere coincidence that the very first murder recorded in the Scripture, it's not two strangers. It's a brother killing his brother. I have two brothers. I had to share a bathroom for years with one of them. I understand the impulse. <laughs> because when you're close to somebody, Right? And, and perhaps no other arena of our lives demonstrates this as closely as marriage and parenting. When you're really close, you're living in a home with other sinful people and you are sinful. You're going to see their sin, they're going to see yours, and those are going to rub against each other in some very painful and difficult ways. And so the scripture tells us we're wired to want to be close. We're wired to want to know and be known. We're wired to want to be vulnerable and open with each other. But there's also pain because of sin. And I know in this room this morning, as I talk about this, that a lot of you, you've got some relationship or relationships in your mind. You're like, yeah, I get it. Maybe that person is sitting with you this morning. And you say, as much as I love this person, there's a lot of pain. And it's hard. Or maybe it's somebody not in this room. Somebody you grew up with. Somebody in your family. Somebody at work. You say, what do we do? Because the answer isn't simply withdrawal. right? It's not good to be alone. So what do we do? How do we begin to move toward hope and healing and reconciliation? And here's what the scripture tells us ultimately. Although we are made for relationships and sin makes our relationships hard, Here's the thing. Jesus can heal our relationships. In fact, fundamentally, you could say, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to reconcile relationships that are broken, starting with the most important one, which is our relationship with God. Remember, we said our relationships with one another are broken and damaged because, first and foremost, our relationship with God is broken and damaged. So what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to bring us reconciliation with God. How does he do that? 
Well, Jesus took the penalty for our sin. He died in our place. Our sin earned death. Jesus took it for us. Even though God did nothing wrong in the relational equation, Jesus bore the penalty. He rose from the dead, and all who trust in him can now have eternal life, but also reconciliation with God. We can know that the sin that separates us from God has been washed away. So that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. And all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them. And he has given us the message of reconciliation. So Paul says, this is what God did. He knew that you had broken that relationship and that I had broken that relationship. So he says, I'm going to forgive you through Jesus. I'm going to reconcile you to me. And then he says, I give you now a message of reconciliation. Because you're reconciled to God, what does that mean? Now you can be reconciled to others, right? Your sin that separated you from God has been washed away. Because you're cleansed, what now can happen? Well, the Spirit of God can move in. And begin to transform us back into the image of God that we were intended to reflect in the first place. That we increasingly now can reflect the love and the mercy and the kindness and the compassion of God. This is why as you move through the rest of the New Testament, you see passages like this one. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Be imitators of God as beloved children. The basis for our relationships to be harmonious and peaceful and reconciled. The basis for all of that is a reconciled relationship with God. Just as Jesus loved us, now we can love others. Just as Jesus forgave us, now we can forgive others in small ways and in big ways. So that you see passages also like this one describing what that looks like for us. Look at the book of Colossians. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, that is the basis of your relationships, is your relationship with God. Now what do you do? You put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. What's he saying? That because the Spirit of God lives in you, you now put on, day after day, a heart of compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and love and humility like Jesus displayed toward us? Would that change the dynamic of most of our relationships? I believe it would. Let me give you a quick illustration. I read a survey this week that said 80% of married couples fight about chores. In fact, years ago, I read a quote from a therapist who said, the quickest way in my office to get a married couple arguing is simply to ask, who does more chores? And she said, I guarantee they'll begin to fight about it. 
I do the dishes. Will I do the laundry? Will I sweep the floors? Will I change the baby? Will I, right? And they go back and forth. They might have a ledger that goes back years for which chores they've done at which time. Right? And I, I'm not saying that I, I know this firsthand, right? But I've heard from some of you that this can be a challenge. And so you begin to have these arguments. You're tired. You get home at the end of the day. You see the sink piled up with dishes. And you go, why has nobody done this all day long? And the other person says, why did this and this and this and this and this? Where have you, you been? You go, well, I've been doing this and this and this and this and this. Let me pull out my notebook where I have listed out the various items that I have done over the years to contribute to this household and this relationship. And they pull out a larger notebook. And so you begin to fight and quarrel and argue. Why? Why? Because I have desires for you and you have desires for me. And so we fight over them. But when I look at a passage like Colossians, I go, what, what would happen if you flip the script at that moment? What would happen if you were the one that you came home and you go, you know what? Yeah, I'm tired. I'm sure they're tired too. I'll just do the dishes with a joyful heart. You go, well, if I did that, they'd never do anything again. Maybe, but probably not. Over time, it just might change the dynamic of that relationship. As you and I learn to forgive, to serve, and to love like Jesus forgave and served and loved. Now, that's a rather trivial example for many people. I know there are thornier issues out there in many relationships. Ones that you say, I've tried, I've prayed, I've worked to reconcile, I've done all that I can. And it's just not happening. And I know that. And in fact, the scripture knows that. God knows that. That's why in the book of Romans, Paul would say this. He goes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So what do we do? We say, God, I want you to transform me through the Spirit into a person who reflects who you are, a person of kindness, patience, love, forgiveness, service. I will be the first to forgive. I will be the first to serve. I will be the first to step out in love. I, I will do those things. And then, God, where I can't control it, where somebody else has hurt me and refuses to reconcile, I'll trust you with what I can't control. And I know that there are moments in our lives, of course, where we have to set boundaries around relationships. I get that. But we always pray, and we always hope, and we always believe that the God who raised Jesus from the dead is capable of healing our human relationships as well. If he could heal the rift between God and and humanity. He can heal the relationships that trouble us. So God wired us for relationships. We're made for them. Sin makes our relationships hard. But Jesus can heal them through the power of the Spirit. So here's what I want to do then for a moment as we close. I want you just to think about the relationships in your life, whether that is uh, friendship or 
marriage or your kids or your neighbors or your coworkers, whatever it is. And here's, here's what I want us to do, is ask this question as we move into this semester. What one relationship in your life needs God's hope and healing the most this year? What one relationship in your life needs God's hope and healing the most this year? Now, you may read that and you go, I immediately thought of a dozen relationships that need God's hope and healing. I get that. I thought that too. But I want us to drill into one this semester because I want us to begin one by one to pray for the relationships in our lives that need hope and healing. And begin to think about how can I pursue forgiveness, harmony, reconciliation in these places that are hard. And I don't know who that is for you. I don't know what the story is. And I don't know what you may have already done or not done. But for a moment as we close, I want us to honestly come before the Lord and say, God, I want you to help me. I want you to help me to be a person of peace, me to be a person of forgiveness, and I'll trust you with the other person because I can't control anything that other person says or does. But make me a person of peace and give me wisdom and hope and healing in this relationship. So for just a moment as we close, we're going to take a moment quietly. You can close your eyes at your seat. You can just sit and process at your seat, but I want to take a moment and reflect on that relationship and ask for God's help and his hope and his healing. Let's do that for a moment as we wrap up. Father, I don't know all of the stories that are going through everybody's minds this morning, but I know that you, you do know and you do see. You know the hurts that we have endured in relationships as well as the joys. You know the ways we have hurt other people as well as the ways we've brought them joy. Father, we struggle so much because we're made in your image and we want to reflect you. But we are finite and we are sinful. So we need your help. We praise you that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and among us. He's here this morning, able and willing to help. And so we pray that you would teach us to be people of forgiveness and reconciliation and love. Father, for each person, you know which relationship they have on their minds. I pray, give each person wisdom. I pray that today would not be the only day that we pray for this relationship, but we would, we would pray each day that you would bring hope and healing, even in those places that perhaps seem hopeless and dark right now. I pray that before this spring ends, that there would be stories of reconciliation and restoration where previously there was separation and hurt. Father, we pray, help us. Through the power of your Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.